Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to our Built podcast. This is our first podcast we've ever done today. Um, Woo! So, hey. <laughs> so um, nice to be here. Um, you can ask questions if you want to on the chat room. Um, if you just click the pink or purple arrows in the bottom right hand corner, and you can chat to the chat text chat in there if you want to. Um, so we're going to be talking about embedding entrepreneurial and enterprise skills in the curriculum. Um, and we're probably going to cover just like the key event. We're just going to have a chat about it, really. Um, so I'm here with three other contributors, and they are going to introduce themselves now. Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there, just finished the cake. It's Andy Panaluna here, and uh, I'm Professor of Creative Entrepreneurship at the University of Wales. Probably um, best known for working with the Quality Assurance Agency and the Higher Education Academy on this. And likewise with the European Commission, um, it's been realised that this is one of eight competency areas that uh, education needs to address. Uh, I'm Dave Jarman, I'm a senior teaching fellow in the Centre for Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at the University of Bristol. And I'm the theme lead within Bristol Futures for embedding innovation and enterprise into the rest of the university, smuggling it in. <laughs> and I'm James Norman, uh, Programme Director for Civil Engineering, and uh, in a previous life I used to be a civil engineer, so I'm now excited about embedding kind of practical practitioner skills into our course. Great. So we're just going to start, Andy's just going to talk through the definition of um, entrepreneurial and <laughs> enterprise education from the QA guidance. Okay, make a point there that really this is about the QEA's interpretation. If you are a researcher looking into the paperwork around this, you'll find that there's a lot of definitions and a lot of people working in slightly different ways. So one of the first things we did was to try and tie down what can be consistent across the UK. We did that back in 2012, and we were told it's actually one of the most important things that we did. We had a review last year, so Dave's nodding there. Yeah, so. I absolutely agree. Uh, so to offer some clarity then, uh, what's more important than these labels, by the way, is what you do, but labels help, and that is, think of enterprise as combining creativity, having original ideas, taking the initiative, generating these ideas yourself, not borrowing from other people. Sometimes people talk about design thinking. Uh, you might ask if your students are adaptable, are they reflective enough in their work? Can they identify problems? as well as actually uh, responding to them. So solving problems is one thing, but identifying them, recognizing patterns through innovation, and being able to express what they've learned and explain and communicate to others. They're quite generic things, really, and you find them a lot. They're really useful in entrepreneurship, which is a form of employability. The entrepreneurship definition is looking at the next step. Where do you take those skills and how do you apply them in terms of value creation? Value creation could be for society, it could be something to, for example, a green, sustainable experience. Uh, it can be for the finance, but it doesn't have to be. It could be valuing something for your community. So how do you take those skills and how do you actually apply them is the entrepreneurship. You might learn about taxation there, you might learn about finance generation. And that's sort of two slightly different things. But if we use those definitions, we find the conversations have a lot more clarity to them. And just to, to build on that, and it's in a sense the reason why I was nodding along when you said it was the bit that really made a difference in the sector. So I always talk about enterprise as being able to have, generate, think about and act on ideas. 
entrepreneurship is effectively operationalizing those, yeah. building a vehicle so that that idea can go somewhere. And I think a lot of people in the sector in other disciplines tended to think of enterprise entrepreneurship almost as if they were just entrepreneurship. So people go, well, I don't really want to talk about financing a company or kind of anything sort of too commercial that feels at odds with maybe what I'm doing in the discipline. So I don't, want, I don't want to touch it. And actually, once you could separate enterprise away from entrepreneurship, suddenly, actually, you could broker conversations with subject areas that were quite happy to talk about enterprise, mm. didn't want to go anywhere near entrepreneurship, or occasionally vice versa. Mm. That actually, you know, we really want to talk about how our research is commercial. We don't necessarily want to have a wider conversation about sort of soft skills, but we're really interested in how a particular research area finds its way to market and the kinds of structures that might turn that in. So uh, they both have their uses independently. Absolutely. It's quite useful you said commercialise, because I think that's a big part of what we do. It's not the only part. Yeah. A similar would be exploit. And again, it's one of those words people don't like, but actually, if you're exploiting an idea to create positive social or cultural value, actually, that's a good use of exploit. I mean, to leave it unexploited is to sort of say that you've not realised the full value of the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, you all obviously do, I mean, Dave and Andy, you, it's enterprise and entrepreneurial, so it's the core of kind of what you do, don't you? But James, I would say your, yours isn't so, such an obvious thing, so what, what, do you, what would you say are the benefits for your students from using skills like these? So I think, um, especially the, the, what you were just saying about enterprise kind of does really chime with what our students need to learn. Yeah. They're, they're going out into industry, they're going to be designing roads, buildings, bridges, and things like problem definition. You know, uh, Do they just assume that the answer is whatever is put in front of them, or do they, can they step back, have, ask those bigger questions, do we need this, what are the benefits of doing it this way, are there other ways, can we be reusing existing infrastructure rather than constantly assuming we're going to start from scratch. So all of that side of things is really important. Financing, uh, civil engineering projects tend to be quite a lot of money. Um, the projects I've worked on vary from about half a million to three billion pounds. So, you know, kind of, they're not the sorts of bits yeah. of money you just happen to have locked yeah. around in your back pocket. So every project, you need to be able to really understand finances and how it's going to be financed and how it's going to function and things like cash flow. Cash flow is a huge issue for companies and you know, that's often where yeah. people go bust. It's not that they've not got good ideas, it's that their cash flow is not yeah. good. So, you know, we need to be thinking about all of these things. Because alongside the technical, they are kind of the, the real life problems that our students will face when they graduate. Mm. There's a very human piece to that as well, in that, you know, actually we want our students to be kind of resilient. We want our students to think about how they take action about the ideas that they have. We want yep. them to, to think about the values that they hold, mm -hmm. the organisations that they'll join, yep. what the organisations that they'll create, mm -hmm. and how these things kind of can be written through that. I, I, I think getting away from that, that narrow sense of the commerciality is quite useful for a lot, a lot of disciplines. Um, Andy might even know the reference on this one, I suspect. I remember one of the, the writers in this space talked about there being kind of three staff motivations for engaging. One was about kind of vocationally helping them find their way into a vocation. Yes. But the other two, one was, one was a civic motivation in that we want our students to be better contributors to society and this was enabling them to do it. And one was a kind of 
I think it was either liberal or idealistic, something like that. But it was about helping our students make the most of themselves. Yeah, self-betterment, um, self-fulfillment, mm. sort of words that sort of spring up around this. And if we're sort of thinking about the education side, there's also distinctions that have been made, for example, in uh, what is the role of this particular course or module? Are you going to learn about something? So you're gaining knowledge, and that's perfectly uh, you know, reasonable and should be there. But are you going to learn to be able to do something mm. as well? And there's it's an interesting distinction that sometimes just assumed if you know about it, you can do it. Well, yes. evidencing that impact on assessment. Yeah. You could now look at things like new degree apprenticeships, and that's learning through. Mm. But you actually do it. So, And then you learn along the way, and you're mentored. Yes. So making distinctions between is it about, is it for, or is it through, can also be helpful in sort of working out what you are doing to help your students. I think the through one's really interesting for, for a lot of colleagues who might initially go, I don't, I don't honestly know how we do this. Actually, an awful lot of this can be done without explicitly ever flagging it up to the students. Now, there is value in <laughs> yeah. explicitly flagging it up so that they yeah. know what they've got. Yes, but actually, if you've got students wrestling with complicated problems, if you've got them working in teams, communicating those ideas, not just to the staff member, but to their peers or to external stakeholders, mm -hmm. actually you're developing skills that have got enormous transferable value, both into self-employment and entrepreneurship and conventional employment as well. Um, so actually you can do an awful lot of this through without ever having to really declare that you're doing enterprise yes, education. Yeah. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, use the language of your discipline and work around it and support people in a way that they know. It's a bit of a talent to be able to do that, actually, that. but uh, I wholly agree with what you say there, Dave. That translation point's interesting. So just as an example of that, I know from working with colleagues in particularly the arts, not often a little bit uncomfortable with words like kind of kind of customer or client or user or sometimes yeah. even stakeholder. But the idea of working out who your audience is, now that instantly is a, seems to be a term that cuts through. Like we can start talking about the relationship between what you're doing and your audience's reaction to it and what you hope your audience will do with it and how you hope you will impact on your audience. And there are all these sort of often quite subject specific sort of metaphors and words that help break through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I guess that would be so different for you in engineering because I guess you do talk in terms of clients and customers. Don't yeah, you? absolutely. Yeah, although although uh, the, the client is a very messy thing in, in engineering projects, so the end user is probably not the same as the client, it's not necessarily the same person who is paying your yeah. company's salary, you know, the, the, so actually understanding that complexity is important. Mm. Um, the other thing, the word that just popped into my head was experience, that actually it's, it's, it's fantastic that students can experience things in an educational environment where it's safe before they experience it out in the real world. So, for example, we now run on our unit a, a design team meeting where our students come together with a whole load of actual professionals in a room and have to explain their idea and it gets debated and discussed. And the idea is it's a way of giving them some formative feedback, but it's also a way for them to kind of realise, oh, we didn't really prepare for that. We didn't really have an agenda. We didn't really... No, and, and actually it gives them like that experience so that when they go out industry and suddenly they're, you know, oh, your boss is sick to, 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 tomorrow and tomorrow there's a design team meeting, you need to go out and do it. And like, they don't panic. They kind of, okay, you yeah, know, I've done that. I've had that experience. I know what to expect. That also picks up on you as an educator because you can help them reflect. 
yeah. you can actually help them to sort of bring out those things that have been going on in their mind. Yes. It may not be so explicit unless you can support them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is making me think, we've talked a lot about courses where they would have the kind of obvious end users or you know, audience at the end, but what about trying to embed these skills in courses like philosophy? Or history? Is that still possible? <laughs> is, is it worth doing at all? Can I, can I just give a, a brief sort of a bias here? My PhD is disproving the Oxford Dictionary of Art. Okay. Okay. So you know, history is a philosophical question. So did something exist? You know, the famous sort of light bulb kind of conversations. You know, there were a number of people involved. There's different stories. History tends to be written by the person who's won, maybe it be in a commercial sense or through a war or something. You can always argue that the whole of history is, in fact, the study of innovations. Yes. Like, what, what ideas emerged? Why did they emerge? How did they stick? Why didn't they stick? Why were they resisted? Why were they then accepted? Why did they go well in some places and badly in others? And what did they lead to? Like, you could look at the whole of history, potentially through an innovation focus lens. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be the only lens that you could use, no. but you, you could absolutely have a conversation with history students about about the history of invention, about the history of innovation, and you could also potentially then, if you want to take the next step, go, okay, and what are the lessons we can learn from historic patterns of invention and innovation and the biography of entrepreneurs that might help you mobilise some of those lessons in your own life? And Dave mentioned humanising earlier on, mm-hmm. and you know history can be reliant on what we call hermeneutics, and the study of hermeneutics, which is actually putting yourself in a position of somebody from the past mm-hmm. as best you can. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, by way of an example, I spent a lot of time in America, um, learning about early photographers, itinerant photographers, and when someone said crayon to me, I immediately visualised a pencil with a coloured tip. Yeah. Crayon at that time was a pastel. So the communication totally broke down if you couldn't immerse yourself in that time and actually work out what the difficult language meant. Mm, absolutely. I think being able to take that historical on is this actually a breakthrough at this point in time? Mm-hmm. Like loads of things look perfectly sensible to us in hindsight, but they would have all been so shocking and new at the time. And I think there's something really interesting about unpicking why innovation and entrepreneurship is resisted. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, so I, I did a master's degree in myth, of all things. Myth. Myth. Like, that was <laughs> yeah. the, it's an yeah. MA in myth. Yeah. <laughs> what department was that? Uh, that, was, that was the classic ancient history department here at the University of Bristol. Was it? Yeah. Oh. Um, and part of my thesis was, uh, well, two, two bits. One was that my thesis was about kind of heroic behaviour. And there's loads of really interesting parallels between how we, how we think about heroes and their role and how we think about entrepreneurs. And the idea of the sort of so the the kind of slightly more heroic superhero entrepreneurs, you read on Musk's and what have you. The ways in which they talk about it is there's there's some really interesting parallels. But who's allowed to do what and what they're allowed to do and why and what they get away with and what have you. But there's also something about so going back to the kind of philosophy point about how we think about kind of um, my language is gonna let me down here because I haven't studied classics for about 15 years, um, about sort of known knowledge and um, kind of, what's the word, educated guesswork. Mm, assumed um, and guessed. Them. Yeah, there's a heuristics. 
Absolutely. But there's an idea that actually a lot of entrepreneurship is fundamentally making educated guesses. <laughs> and Lagging. Yeah, yeah, that's another <laughs> way of putting it. And to be honest, I always make the link that I think I think art students in particular ought to be brilliant laggers because they spend three years working <laughs> in a grey area. Like, yeah. they're, they're, you know, things are not fixed mm-hmm. in the same way that they might be in some of the kind of more physical sciences maybe maybe although yeah i feel like well i think we need to push back on our students to make them feel like that things are not fixed for them either but there's a lot of implicit assumption which breaks down when you look at it there's an interesting bit in i think it's it's in kind of uh in greek ancient greek history talking about how they viewed these slightly more entrepreneurial characters that at certain points in history characters like odysseus were viewed as heroes but Odysseus is a complete chancer. Like he's he's really resourceful. He's a real entrepreneur in those in those stories. If you if you take that view, and then at later points in, in Greek history, he was absolutely viewed as a trickster in that sort of trickster god kind of category. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Like he was almost evil. Like actually, he wasn't. He was just taking his chances all the way along. And then you can compare that with like modern discussions about entrepreneurs as Del Trotter. Versus kind of entrepreneurs as uh, Anita Roddick, or you know, okay. obviously there's, there's yeah. a different discussion. I say a friend yeah. called yeah. Jones uses the term reasonable adventurers. Yeah. I quite like that. Yeah, because nice. you, you know, you're adventuring, but you are taking you know, noting the risk and you're taking account of it. Mm. I think coming back to your question, so in in our engineering degree, there is kind of assumed that there are three possible outcomes for our students. They'll either choose to be researchers. Or they'll choose to be civil engineers, or they'll choose to do something else. Okay. And actually, what we try and do is map the course so that it's successful for all three options. So we're not saying we are preparing you all to be researchers. And if, if by serendipity you end up being a good engineer and you can go off and be do that as well, or you know you might go off and be working finance, you know, great. But that intention is you all become researchers. Yeah. And actually, I, I think that that mindset, you know, in some ways, yes, it's easy for us because we have. You know, one of our other options is they go and be engineers, but we're also training people up to do something else as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no reason why in philosophy or history, they, you know, yes, they're training some people up to be researchers, but they're training other people to go off and work, you know, in politics or in, you yeah. know, kind of government or... In a, in a lot of the arts, you know, a lot of students are, in one way or another, sort of aspiring often to kind of media, creative sector. Mm-hmm kind of art journalism, that sort of stuff. Actually, those are all, at the moment, really precarious forms of employment. Yeah. It's contract work, it's freelancing work, it's multiple, it's it's a portfolio career. So actually, even if they would never identify as being entrepreneurs, they are going to have to behave in an entrepreneurial way. And that's how (laughs) some of this stuff has to creep across. Now, then, then it becomes a discussion about whether... The curriculum is content to talk about entrepreneurship as a sort of proxy for employability, and that's slightly different. And I was going to say, does being self-employed make you an entrepreneur? No. What's the difference no. there then? I think it's more. I think it's, it's how you choose to describe yourself, because I don't think there's an acceptment out there that people. I've heard entrepreneurs say, yeah. you can be an entrepreneur just as you start out, and I've heard some people say you can be an entrepreneur only when you raise a million pounds and start a ten businesses. That's a, that's a <laughs> I mean, when I ran my shop with my parents, um, I would have called myself an entrepreneur. 
because I was literally doing the same thing day in, day out, not really questioning anything. Okay. Uh, business was successful, didn't need to. And then partway through, we had uh, another business, a simple grocery shop, uh, set up across the road in competition. And all of a sudden, I became entrepreneurial because mm. we had to think, how can we actually provide a better offer than the new business, fledgling business, okay. you know, that's on our doorstep? And then we started to think about importing fruits. We bought kiwi fruit. It's one of the first in the UK. They're everywhere now, yeah. but they weren't at that time. So we reached out and used our networks and so on and so forth. So okay. that's when, for me personally, at an early age, the shift happened. So it's about ambition, it's like want to move forward or? I often break it back into three things. And this also impacts, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, James, but on the way that we evaluate learner performance, student performance. Um, we can use hindsight. We can use just history, accept the history, if you like, rightly or wrongly. Um, so we can like, give people exams and tests, or we can test their knowledge, because there's a known known. We can then look at insight, and insight is when you bring something new to the table. So if you are actually sort of spotting an opportunity because this one's got this background as well as that in your engineering course, that might bring something new okay. to the table. If you get a series of those insights, you then get what we call foresight. So you can start to visualize the future. Ask yourself as an educator, if you're listening now, how often do you evaluate and support your students? Having foresight, mm -hmm. being able to look ahead, because that's a series of insights that you've connected to look to a future potential. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's one of the distinct differences. I could work on simply what I know and carry on doing that day in, day out. Or increasingly, the world of work is asking for you to be flexible, adaptable, take on new technologies, which is moving to this insight and foresight yeah. roles. And on that basis, the bit about being on the nose is almost wanting to keep moving and to keep yeah. moving forward. But I, I don't think it prescribes a, a specific level of ambition. Like, you can be entrepreneurial whenever wanting to raise a whole lot of money. You can be entrepreneurial wanting to run a really good little lifestyle business. It just sort of ticks over and doesn't bring mm -hmm. stuff up. But you, you want to create growth and impact. But I think the ways in which you might measure that growth and impact whether it's for you, whether it's for other people, whether it's kind of for society, whether it's economic, whether it's cultural, whether it's civic, environmental, academic, the growth of academic knowledge. I mean, there are lots of academics who I think behave very entrepreneurially. Yeah, and researchers. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Without ever wanting to accept that term. Mm. Just, just coming back, you, you talked about the um, the three different approaches, and, and one of the things we were discussing yesterday is failure. Yeah. And actually, yeah. knowledge is, is, is easy for students to regurgitate, it's easy for us to assess. Foresight, that they probably have very little practice in foresight from the ages of 0 to 18. That's probably not something that the A-level curriculum has been asking for. Or geez, so, so I'll jump in and then say primary schools are pretty good at it. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> but do, do you think it gets lost then in, the, in secondary or in, in just in the, or do you think they do get taught it? I think there's a shift in the current education. This is a personal view, mm -hmm. um, but this is based on working with about 42 countries, so bear with me. Uh, and what I see is that primary school there tends to be this encouragement to experiment, to find out about the world, to find out about, and this is natural as well. We can look at this at brain development. It's a natural thing for young people to do. Uh, and as we go through the education system, we move to tests and exams, 
yeah. that need to measure, that need to be comparable. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got knowledge, it's relatively easy, I know there are people who won't find this comfortable to hear perhaps, it's relatively easy to test knowledge. Mm-hmm. When someone actually goes beyond your knowledge and comes up with a new concept or idea, mm-hmm. how do you evaluate it? How yes. do you put a grade on it? Yeah. Yes, we're really wrestling in the Centre of Innovation at the moment about how you measure distance travelled. Mm-hmm. So just to go back to your three-part thing, knowledge, yes, leads to insight. And actually, almost any student who has to do any sort of research process, so not just regurgitating the things that they've been taught, but actually has to go Get into PhD yes. level in yeah. a way, yeah. It's fundamentally about generating a set of insights, using mm-hmm. that knowledge of yes. generating some new insights. Yeah. Getting them to then act on it to make something, or at least propose something, mm-hmm. or yes. to plan a venture of some kind that could be charitable, academic, and impact case study group things. Mm. But for me, that might be a way of demonstrating foresight, that effectively by having a student say, we propose to do this for these reasons, based on these insights, we are yes. projecting into the future, and we are saying something about how we think the world is going to look. Yeah. And that that's rather good. And, and that goes back to about a certain point about distance travel, but we've got a situation in our third and fourth years of our four-year integrated masters that means that students are sometimes starting from scratch on a project and they are sometimes starting based on some pre-existing work they've already done. They've done some research somewhere else, they've got a little side project, they've got their own entrepreneurial venture that they want to bring into our program. Mm-hmm. And we need to measure them all equally, fairly, despite the fact they're starting from different places, they're doing things with different levels of complexity, but that some of them are effectively almost taking a, a known idea off the shelf and just executing a really good version of it, which is what yes. a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of them are taking on really wicked problems and trying to work out how on earth to tackle mm. something, you know, poverty or what have you. Something, something really good. Yes. Yes. You, you put your there. finger on it there when you say wicked problems, because yeah. so often students give them tasks that the knowns, we know what yeah. they're going to produce. Um, you know, if we're writing an essay, we've got a good idea which canons of thought should be cited, etc. etc. Yeah. When you come into those areas that you're discussing there, these things become very difficult in terms of tangible outcomes. Yeah. Um, so from an educational point of view, the journey travelled becomes more important mm-hmm. than the, the process. But then outcomes. how do you measure the journey tra- travelled? <laughs> so at the moment, and I was gonna ask I was gonna ask this of Andy, but not necessarily uh, in the webinar. But I'll do it now. Um, with, with about, so we're looking at how you assess competency. Okay. So how you assess the students' competencies. So in a sense, where they get to in the project is a little bit irrelevant. It's have they gone about it in the right way? Have they been able to show us they know the right tools to use at the right moments to, to achieve an effect? And even if they haven't yet got to that effect, we can see evidence that they know what to do. So we're now trying to work, we're actually using some of the QAA's kind of um, outcomes mm-hmm. to try and think about how we look at what, you know, poor, middling, good and excellent would look like yeah. in the delivery yeah. of a competency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's challenging though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and would some people already be competent in those skills when they start, so if they have a side project? Yeah. Okay, so they, they've already got them up before they've even done the project. But they still got to demonstrate it, okay. and they still got to demonstrate okay. they can do it reliably. Yes. I mean, foreknowledge is not something that we 
you know, like if, if you walk into a maths exam and you can already do the maths, yeah. you didn't learn any of it at university because you'd learned it all already. We don't say, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 We can't penalise you. No. We can give you a grade from the university that is asked validating that you have an ability at a certain yes. level. And yes. fundamentally, in a degree programme, that's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, we can validate that this person is competent at this, yes. yeah. in our view. Mm. Yes. If you use wicked problems, coming back to that, you can celebrate glorious failure. Yeah. Yes. So bringing that full circle, your point about the failure. Yeah. Um, again, you have to accept that I'm actually from a graphic design background. Mm -hmm. um, so my business knowledge really was learned through working consistently, working with different clients. Almost every week, every day, I'd be working, uh, a friend of mine put it this way, I'll borrow from her, she was working for Metro Golden Mayor Films one day, the next day she was working for You Can Uber Dog Food, and then the rest of the week she was working for the Territorial Army. Mm. So if you put yourself in a designer's point of view, you're working with all these different clients, there's always going to be things that go wrong in communication or so on and so forth. Mm. So this term glorious failure relates to when you've learned something, and can I just remind everybody, we're in educational institutions here, when someone's learned something but maybe the outcomes didn't work well, but they can reflect Explain mm -hmm. what problems were, explain what the issues were, inform the next iteration. Yes. To me, that's success. Yeah. Yep. And in an educational yeah. sense, that's success. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So that's what glorious failure is. Well, it is mm. taking those positive points that may not have been the outcome that they wanted, but they still learned skills. And, and it's the learning that becomes important, okay. not the goal that the educator sets. Mm. Do you, they might do be students learning. feel that way? Or do they just <laughs> uh, feel that they failed? you want to answer that one first? Yeah. Or um, it, 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 you have to manage it very carefully. Yeah. I, I think the same with the students in our centre who do these kinds of things for a number of years, I think begin to work out that they can do well even if it, even if, even if it didn't go well, they can still do well. Okay. Yes. Mm. And, and that breeds a level, um, I think it breeds a level of resilience and confidence. We haven't yet had a graduate cohort yet, that's still the over year away. To, to really kind of prove that. But we think that we're building people up who can work in quite flexible and agile ways um, and be kind of robust in these circumstances. Mm. Where we've gone out to teach a single course to a cohort who aren't used to this, mm. actually those students do find it trickier. Yeah. And, and we very rarely get to a, a failure, but we do, what we do see is students trying to take a safe path through it. Yes. So actually, James's fourth-year engineers, who we do teach, are, are a case in point, in that they do, they want, in a 12-week course, we're saying to them, don't settle on an idea for about four, five, six weeks if you can, because, you know, all the studies show you will have, you will have had a better idea if you leave it longer, okay. before settling down and executing it. Like, the creative process, the process of going, mm -hmm. does this really work? Oh, actually, there's a better version. We've got a new insight. We pivot, we move on, we develop. But the, what the students want to do is they want to nail that idea down in two weeks. Yes. And yeah, then they want to spend, you know, eight to ten weeks writing it up. Yeah. And trying to get them out of that is, is really difficult. So that there's always a bit of tension about trying to get them to play that out for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, and also the problem definition, often they will define the problem by yeah. what they think will lead to an outcome that gets a good mark, yeah. rather than defining the problem in such a way as to 
you know, kind of maximise their opportunities to learn about creativity, to learn about kind of resilience and failure, whatever, you know, like they would fight, they will try and add their own dimensions to the problem and definition. And sometimes we will try and help them by offering them a template or a format to put their answer in. And that isn't actually always helpful because not every innovation looks like a traditional business plan. Actually, we're debating at the moment whether, you know, a lot of our assessments sometimes do look like a bit of a venture kind of plan. But actually, could, you know, if a student's innovation is all about affecting policy change, well, actually, that's not the most appropriate format. I mean, it still needs an impact case. It still needs a, an economic case written into it. They still need to prove they understand a lot of those principles about how that idea will be viable, desirable, feasible, sustainable. Mm-hmm. But actually, the, the written format could be quite different. And actually, what, what is professionally appropriate? If actually they want to go off and work in policy, teaching them how to write business plans is only so useful. Yeah. Teaching them the underlying principles of the kinds of arguments they need to make and the kinds of research that allow them to formulate those arguments, now that, that is important. Yeah. Uh, if you think like an academic, the more strands of argument you've got, the old debating society, yeah. you know, the more strands you've got, the more uh, we talk in terms of divergent and convergent mm-hmm. thinking. And it may or may not be of interest, but we actually assess the divergency of thought. Yes. Whereas a lot of enterprise yeah. will simply look at the convergent. Yeah. Uh, here's your quick idea from a couple of weeks. How are we going to test it? How are we going to evaluate it? Mm-hmm. Divergent production is all about how many ideas you can have, yeah. uh, how well you can reflect on how those ideas develop and communicate that reflection, yeah. and creating multiple solutions. And when you've created multiple solutions, the student that's given you the same solution 10 times over with slight variations will get a lower grade than yeah. the students come up with 10 totally different novel solutions. Yeah. So if you actually assess that before you start the testing mm-hmm. process, you, you're a long way to ensuring that sort of longevity, shall we say, yeah. of the thought diversion. There's a guy in at the iSchool in Japan, Hari, who I work with at the OECD, and uh, he came to... Um, IEC and presented there and he's actually demonstrated that the longer you can leave that decision making process the better the ideas are mm. it's yeah. a fantastic piece of research and I think what you just said it's really a key way that um, this way of thinking can be applied to so many disciplines all mm. disciplines require thinking about problems and mm-hmm. if you do say to students I want you to come back and say one exercise come back with 10 different solutions instead of mm. one answer that's just a really easy way to get that creative thinking mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so many courses, consciously or unconsciously, effectively set up a problem that has an answer. Yep. And yeah. It may even have a right answer. It's easy to assess though, right? Yeah. 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 And it will certainly say, just tell me one answer and explain it at yes. length. Yeah. And yes. I think actually there is real value, not, not in every unit, not in every example, but as Andy says, to say, well, actually, what we want to see is lots of answers, and we want to see a divergency of answers, and we want to see, effectively, how disparate mm. those answers could be, and how you got to them. And then there might be another assessment a little bit later that says, okay, and just nail it down to one, based on a sensible evaluation of all those different ideas that you've got to, mm. you know, you do that process where you go, creatively, how could we do it? And then critically, which of them actually work? Yeah. So we tend to jump to the critical. I have a major bugbear with that, though. And my major bugbear is not that I disagree with that approach, 
but so often I see this approach, which is a student comes up with an idea. That idea is the right idea. They jump straight to the right, we're progressing with this idea. And then at some point, they realize that the mark scheme says they have to have come up with a certain number of different solutions, and then they have to have selected the best solution. Well, the best solution is the idea that they've come up with and they're wedded to. So they then reverse engineer the process. And it drives me mad. They come up with decision-making <laughs> matrices and all. And I'm like, you've put the numbers in to choose a solution you already know is right. There is nothing, you know, you, you've not is learned that, anything through that process. Is that also down, potentially, um, we talk about professional bodies and things, to the rules and regulations you have to work to. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, That's in my yeah. design background, we would rarely give the full brief to the students at outset. We'd give an outline of it, what the problem mm-hmm. was, and then we'd change something. So we bring more information in than mean they had to pivot. Yes. Point about having to change, and then three or four weeks in, they'd have to change again. Mm-hmm. And an example of that um, just come to mind at the moment. I've used it a few times now. Uh, if uh, James Isles will know who he is, if you ever watched uh, Doctor Who or Sherlock or something like that on TV, and James is a storyboard artist, but he his role is to translate things into the visual. Yes. So James came in to teach our students and he said, okay, um, I'm going to want you to create a new logo for the Creativity Academy. Oh, sorry, just a minute, I've got a phone call. And he walks out the room. 20 minutes later, he comes back in the room and there's a room full of light bulb drawings here in the room. Because that's what students rush to is their first answer. So then James says, oh, okay, I'm sorry I didn't finish briefing you. Uh, the next bit is you need to know the headmaster is going to be uh, somebody called Humphrey Davy, who you'll know in Bristol. Mm-hmm. So Humphrey Davy was a lecturer in Bristol in the early 1800s. And uh, suddenly they realise it's a historical project. And the history is actually before the light bulb was invented. Mm-hmm. So then they have to do this hermeneutics and start researching well, what was going on then. So they come up with lots of different answers and things around that. And what James will then do is sort of say to them, well, okay, uh, we want to imagine now it's a Doctor Who episode and we're skipping forward to 2025 or 2030. What would this logo look like in 2030? And how would you mark it? So for students, (laughs) yes, initially find this approach quite rightly. uh, Frustrating. I'm giving you an example and other students have experienced this quite a lot. But the answers you get and the breadth of response you get and their ability to argue but it's down to the uh, educational system giving him the open attitude to bring these changes in yes. sequentially, as yeah. opposed to, as we so often do, give the project at the beginning, it's fixed, nothing changes, yeah, yeah. and then you're measuring it. And that's, by using the technique I've just described, yes. it's a way in design education, at least, that we use to break that down. Yeah, so I've thought about it so many times, and every time I think about it, I just, the look of like terror, <laughs> the stress on our, my poor students' faces, it kind of comes back. But but I, but I think it's really valid to do it. And maybe, be, like, it sounds like that's a workshop, which is maybe quite low stakes. It's not, you know, their final design project, their degree doesn't write. And that it's finding the right opportunities for that, isn't it? But if you can get them into some of those habits in an early stage, yes. actually, you set those up. I mean, a similar thing would be about kind of group work. So one of the things I always come back to in kind of good enterprise education is actually teaching students to collaborate and communicate really well, yes. which fundamentally could fit in all kinds of different yeah, units. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and are an absolute bedrock of being able to kind of be creative, be entrepreneurial, be innovative. But actually students really struggle 
to work effectively in groups a lot of time, partly because that they often have had no briefing on what good group work might look like. Yeah. They've got no idea that actually people can behave in different ways in a group quite legitimately. Yeah. Like they are behaving differently, but they are not a moron. You know, actually, <laughs> there, there, is a, there, there is a rationale for why they're behaving like that. It's not your rationale, but there is a rationale. Yeah. And then actually, does the group work debrief that at any stage? Is there any kind of compare and mm. contrasting, different styles, different modes? And actually, at the end, if they all get marked in the same way, despite the fact that there may have been some people who did lots and some people who did nothing, they all tend to walk away from the group experience absolutely having hated it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that sets up some pretty poor attitudes to collaborating with each other that, you know, then don't get helped as everybody escapes the room, retreats back into their personal individual device mm-hmm. and stares at that for the rest of the day rather than, you know, actually communicate and collaborate again. Um, so we see in our centre that we make our students collaborate and we do a lot of things mm-hmm. that I mentioned there right from year one. And by third and fourth year, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty good. Yeah. Fact, our students have actually said they would quite like to collaborate with students from outside the centre because they think that they all know how to collaborate so well with each other that actually it's just not a challenge anymore. Oh, really? And they'd actually like to collaborate with some students who aren't used to collaborating That's interesting. because yeah. that would be a challenge. Yeah. Whereas actually when we roll that particular model out to the fourth year engineers, some of them are great, some of them are amazing, but some of them are just like, well, how, how are you going to measure the fact that I'm going to do all the work and someone else is going to do none? And then some people take the leadership without really thinking about why or how or how that yeah. affects other yeah. people. There are kind of good examples of both good and bad examples of both leaders and passengers in teams. Yes. And and they they struggle with that. Yeah. Mm. And you, when you say leaders, I, I suspect you actually mean people who decide to do all the work. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not yeah. really leading at all. What we're doing is they decide that the best way to get this done well yeah. is if I just do everything, you yeah. guys can just disappear. You yeah. <laughs> both, both reminded me of something, if I can interject with the quality assurance agency work again. Um, a lot of people uh, said to me initially, sort of, why did you challenge the QA? Because that's how it started. I challenged the QA that they weren't actually delivering on this. Uh, having worked with the HA, we'd come up with this sort of uh, question for them. And so people said to me, well, you know, okay, you're going to be doing this from a business school? And I said, no, uh, absolutely not. What I'm going to do is sort of work out what entrepreneurial competencies and behaviours are. And then I'm going to look to the QAA subject benchmark statements in their entirety. At that time, I think it was 32 subject benchmark statements. I may be wrong on that, but thereabouts. So I read every single subject benchmark statement. And I came up with things like, Decision making and situations of duress was in the medical guidance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, communicating and persuading. It's in performing arts. Who can persuade you more than someone who's a good actor? Yeah. And and so on and so forth. So I started to go through the different disciplines and the QA guidance is actually uh, giving a secret away here maybe an amalgamation of what we thought was best practice across the whole gamut subject benchmark statements that they offered at that time. Right. So it'd be, well, yeah, that just shows that the, the interdisciplinary work when doing these sorts of studying these sorts of skills is like, they're essential really because everyone's got so much mm-hmm. to learn from each other and what they actually... Well, Bristol's engaged with Set Squared and if you want to see a good oh, example yeah. of that, 
Um, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to have helped out on that a few times now. And you get, um, you know, postdocs, PhDs. This is the researcher to innovator. Researcher to innovator program specifically, but it's also the front end of iCurie, yep. the uh, innovator to commercialization. And uh, we get the students together and into teams, interdisciplinary teams. And the first few days are simply spent getting them to be able to talk to each other, appreciate each other's values in the team. Okay, we may have engineered it a little, yeah. And we give them group tasks where they struggle um, because they're wicked problems. Mm -hmm. But it helps the adhesion of the team. Mm -hmm. And the solutions that you get, the new, I mean, the funding on iCurie, uh, I think Mori Paul said that it did bring in three to eight pounds for every pound spent on the course, generated income. And that's an independent poll by Mori. Mm -hmm. And all it is really is getting high end thinkers with lots of knowledge from different disciplines. To work together. Yeah. And, and equally, just to build on that, because I've been involved a little bit in those programs, is how do you get researchers to look up from their research, be that the library bench or the laboratory bench, and go, who's actually going to get value out of either my research or the competencies that I've built up in the process of doing my research? And actually, a huge part of both the, the success of those models is actually just taking people at a really formative stage in their kind of research and going, before you go deeper in, just think about who's interested. Like, actually, who, do you, who should you be talking to as a, an end user of this research? Somebody who will benefit from this research idea. Or, actually, if you find out that nobody's particularly interested in the research in the wider world, are they interested in you and what you know how to do. Like, is it you that adds value yeah. as opposed to the idea? Mm. And actually, once you can do that, people can start to do all kinds of things. Mm. And, and that is, a, again, it goes back to these bits about enterprises, about acting on ideas. But part of acting on ideas is knowing who the, the user or the audience or the customer is, who's the person who ascribes value to it. Because yeah. you can ascribe value to it in all kinds of ways. But actually, fundamentally, all of this is about finding other people mm. who also find it valuable. Yeah. And being able to have that conversation, being able to articulate it in those ways, being able to get it from you to them in the most efficient way possible so that it creates the most value for them at the least effort for you. You know, that's, that's, that's value yeah. creation. And actually, you know, the interest in Andy's take on this is one of the things that Enterprise Education started to talk about is almost moving away from some of the business creation stuff and actually talking about value creation mm. as a term that actually seems to resonate with more people and seems to be more useful for the students. Almost like a utilitarian approach. Yeah, yeah, I've made it sound like I'm not sure that was my intention. I understand why it's a set And okay, so it's quarter two now, which is there any last comments anyone would like to add before we end? Is there any questions that we have online? Or anything? No, there are no questions. Have they made sense to everybody? Is the question to anybody? <laughs> I think I would say is we are trying to build support in this area here at yeah. the University of Bristol in this regard. So with my, my hat on this theme lead and um, I'm sure James is a built fellow and that, and there are many others engaged yeah. in this. Actually, it is, I think colleagues will find it surprising the sheer number of other colleagues at the university who are involved in these kinds of activities, consciously or not, 
um, where there's great expertise being built up and we are trying to build that community up to ensure that that's and we've got friends like Andy um, from uh, you know beyond the perimeter of the university who come in on a, on a really regular basis actually I've only got to see here at Bristol this year um, can I just say the reason is because I think what you're doing here with the innovation plus approach mm -hmm. is like spot on so I'm, I'm really enthused about what you're doing here so I'll say that quite openly but yeah but we're happy to help well, um, thank you everyone for listening. We'll put a recording of this on the website soon um, and we'll paste on Twitter when we've done it to let everyone know. So, um, thanks for listening. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye, Bye now.